Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a global science-led biopharmaceutical business committed to bringing to market innovative oncology medicines that address high unmet needs. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, in honor of Brain Tumor Awareness Month, it's a conversation with Dr. Jennifer Moliterno. Dr. Moliterno is an assistant professor of neurosurgery and of brain tumor surgery at Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor of surgery and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. So Jennifer, you know, we don't really talk a lot about brain cancer, but it sounds really scary. Mm -hmm. So first of all, can you lay the, the scenario for us in terms of brain cancers? I mean, there are some cancers that start somewhere else, the mm -hmm. breast, the lung, the pancreas, that then goes to the brain. Mm -hmm. And then there are cancers that start in the brain. Mm -hmm. Are those different yeah, they're very much different. And so there are, as you were saying, there's metastatic cancer that metastasizes to the brain from another primary, and then there's cancer that originates in the brain. There's also, and it's important to point out as well, there's also benign brain tumors. And so anyone who hears or finds out that they have a brain tumor, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have brain cancer. Um, and so, of course, a, a, a thorough workup and that sort of thing needs to be done um, to better understand and try to characterize what type of tumor. Um, but they do usually behave differently. Um, and, and of course, you know, with the metastatic tumors, you always have to take into consideration of the systemic cancer. Whereas with brain cancer, those that originate in the brain um, itself, they usually don't metastasize outside of the brain. They mm. just stay within the brain. So let's start at the beginning. How does one have an inkling that they may have a brain tumor? I mean, we often all get headaches. Right. Um, so so what what are the kind of the the things, the symptoms that should spark us to go, oh my gosh, I really need to seek attention. And after this talk, everyone will think that they have a brain tumor. <laughs> so so hopefully hopefully we, we actually lead to the opposite and, and people understand a little bit more. So you're right. Everyone has headaches. Um, you know, people will have blurred vision or, you know, who, who knows what um, from time to time. And it may just need that you need a new prescription for your glasses. And it may just mean that, you know, you're, you're working too hard at, at work. Um, so no, the vast majority majority of people who have those things don't have a brain tumor. Um, but I would say that, you know, for people who, who, for instance, with headaches, for people who have not had headaches, um, and then all of a sudden they have headaches, and they're, they're worsening headaches, or um, they're different types of headaches than their usual, for instance, that's worth getting checked out. And it's worth just kind of picking up the phone and calling your primary care doctor and saying, hey, is this something I should be concerned about? I don't think there's any harm with that. Um, same for visual changes. There's other tumors um, that um, usually the more ag aggressive types are faster growing that might be occurring near what we call eloquent brain or brain that has important function. And so a tumor that's near the motor area, for instance, someone could present with weakness. Um, and certainly, you know, experiencing one, one part of your, your body being weak is really not normal. 
Um, and so that really kind of warrants a, a workup for that. Um, uh, there can also be uh, tumors that occur near the speech area. And so you might find subtle changes in terms of cognition or language. But again, you know, as we are tired, as the day goes on, you know, you, you might kind of slur your words or stutter or something like that or forget your words. So again, I think just looking for patterns of, of things happening over and over um, is really what should, should get people's attention. And so if you have this pattern, you know, you start having headaches that you wake up with and you're are with you all day mm-hmm. or you have persistent weakness in one part of your mm-hmm. body or you have consistent changes such that you can't grasp sure. your words anymore. Um, you call your primary doctor. What what tests should your primary doctor be doing? So usually primary care doctors, or even if you come to the emergency room, um, either one, usually they'll start out with a CAT scan of the brain, and they usually get that without contrast, just to make sure that there's no bleed or hemorrhage or, um, you know, of course, other types of causes for those things, stroke, et cetera. Um, And so that's usually what they start with. Um, If there is an area of concern, um, then usually they'll follow up with an MRI, And usually they like to do those tests with contrast uh, because that will better kind of characterize the tumor. Um, And then when we read the MRIs and interpret it, you know, the the types of contrast enhancement, how how the tumor takes up dye, that sort of thing gives us clues as to what the most likely pathology is. So just based on the MRI and how the contrast is taken up by the tumor, you can get a sense of whether this is benign or malignant? Absolutely. What I what I always tell my patients is that I, nor anyone, knows what it is with 100% certainty. The only one who really can tell us that is the pathologist, when and if we decide to take it out. But, you know, a lot of times for, for the more benign tumors, we don't need to take it out, and we don't need to actually know what it is. And so there's a lot of different factors that kind of go into that decision-making process, but um, tumors look pretty characteristic. Um, And again, when you see people such as myself who do this day in and day out, we're used to looking at these things and we're used to being able to say, yeah, that's what I think this is or that's what I think that is. We also here have a multidisciplinary tumor board. And so if there's any ever any concern or doubt as to what the diagnosis might be, oftentimes I will present the patient's scan at our tumor board where there's other doctors such as myself uh, who specialize in the treatment of patients with brain tumors. And we review it with our neuroradiologist and other, again, brain tumor doctors take a look. And then we have a consensus that says, yeah, I'm pretty confident that this is the diagnosis, likely benign. And if the patient is not symptomatic, you know, oftentimes we can just follow. Uh, along. If the patient is symptomatic, if the tumor is large, um, if there's other kind of concerning features, then that might might lead to an operation. How, so, so you can get an idea of whether it's benign or malignant, looking at the scans, talking to your colleagues, and so on. And if the patients don't have any symptoms, that's great. They can live with it, and you'll do another scan in. Yeah, so I usually start out pretty conservatively, and I'll scan. It depends. If, if I'm concerned that there really could be malignancy, 
um, then, and for whatever reason, I'm not entirely convinced of that, and so I opt to, to repeat a scan. I may do it a little sooner, you know, six weeks or so. But oftentimes, if I think it's benign and I'm, I'm pretty confident of that, I'll, I'll usually wait about three months and scan. And then usually we'll just kind of follow it serially uh, over time, stretching out the increments of time between scans. And as long as the person is not symptomatic, as long as the tumor's not bothering the person and the person's not bothering the tumor, they can live together and we can just follow it. But if it starts to cause problems, um, or frankly, sometimes patients just say, I want it out, um, or if it's a large size, or especially if we see growth over time, Mm -hmm. um, then we may opt to take it out. Of course, if there's growth over a shorter period of time, that's more concerning. Um, How do you tell the difference between a malignant tumor that starts in the brain versus a malignant tumor that got to the brain from somewhere else? You know, it's kind of hard, to be honest. And I think that there's some very subtle features. Um, A lot of times in in the way that the edema or the swelling in the brain um, looks, sometimes in primary brain tumors, tumors that originate in the brain, that will oftentimes be infiltrative tumor. Mm. Primary brain tumors tend to infiltrate or spread through the brain. So they don't spread outside of the brain typically, but they spread within the brain. And so that might look a little bit different than just a tumor that came you know, from the breast um, that's associated with swelling. But even so, it's often very hard to tell. Oftentimes with metastatic tumors, there'll be multiple tumors. Mm-hmm. And so that can be a, a clue as to this is coming from somewhere else. Oftentimes, those patients will have a history of cancer. Mm-hmm. And so if there's someone who you know was diagnosed with breast cancer and is undergoing treatment and, and et cetera, and then they present with one other thing we didn't talk about, but seizure, mm-hmm. because oftentimes patients can present with seizure, um, you know, then you kind of put two and two together and you think, well, they have a history of cancer, they have Could a be. mass. It, it probably makes that more likely. But um, when we ever have a, a question, um, we'll get a, a scan of the body just to see if there is cancer elsewhere. But oftentimes, the way that we manage it is very much the same. If they're symptomatic, if they're large, you know, if the tumor um, is causing problems for the patient, then it really needs to come out regardless. So if it's, if it's causing symptoms, which presumably is why they came to you in the first mm-hmm. place, whether it's benign, whether it's malignant primary to the brain, or whether it's metastatic, treatment is still going to involve excision. Oftentimes it does. There's there's few tumors that, um, even with large symptomatic tumors, that we will just biopsy, meaning that we'll you know, just take a sample of the tissue, and we usually do that stereotactically, with, meaning just with a very kind of small, delicate needle, um, for instance, lymphoma or, or certain types of cancers as well. Um, And so we might favor that approach uh, in those situations because then other types of treatment are are best used for those types of tumors. Of course, if there's tumors that are located in very difficult areas, um, areas that are really not safe to operate in, then we may opt for biopsy as well. But at least I tried to be as aggressive as possible um, because there's good evidence to support that the more tumor that's out of the head, the better the patient does in the end. But brain surgery often seems scary, at least to me and to our audience, I'm sure, that, okay, you've got a brain tumor, and now somebody is going to go in and take out a piece of your brain. Mm -hmm. Um, 
How safe is that? It is scary. I, I completely understand that. And when I talk to patients, you know, for me, in fact, I just came from surgery sitting here now. So for me, this is what I do day in and day out. Um, but I don't do it to that person day in and day out, you know. And so um, I completely understand how scary that must be um, and, uh, and empathize with that completely. It actually is very safe, believe it or not, um, and especially... Um, with a, a couple of factors taken in. So if you are seeing somebody, especially for brain tumor surgery, for instance, who is specialized in brain tumor surgery, I think that's incredibly important. Uh, research your surgeon, make sure that they that they really do specialize in brain tumors. I think along those lines, um, kind of like what we have here, um, is uh, to have neuroanesthesia, you know, to have a, an anesthesia team that, that focuses uh, on the brain and that makes it as safe as possible. There's other types of adjuncts that we use during surgery to make it safe. So one is we have a GPS system. So that allows us to just target the tumor. Um, and so we really don't remove brain, so to speak. We remove the tumor. And so um, it's really just kind of taking out the bad part of the brain and leaving everything else alone. Um, along those lines, too, we'll, we'll often use what we call neuromonitoring. And so with the patient asleep, we're able to monitor uh, their motor function, um, some of their nerve functions. For instance, if we're working uh, on acoustic neuromas or tumors that have to do with the hearing and balance and facial nerve, we can monitor those with the patient asleep. And sometimes, in, in rare situations, but sometimes, uh, we'll keep the patient awake. Um, and that really allows us to, to perform a safe surgery, especially when we're trying to um, preserve language function. So how, how is it that you're able to take out just the bad parts and leave the good parts if you can't see with your naked eye the cancer cells. Like in other tumors, we talk about taking a margin and mm -hmm. you can't really tell mm -hmm. where how close you are to the cancer. There must be ways that you are able to differentiate that. Yes. And so we have to take a quick break for a medical minute. But when we come back, we're going to dive deeper into how exactly Dr. Moliterno and her colleagues here at Yale can take out brain cancer and still make this an incredibly safe operation. Please stay tuned to learn more about brain tumors with my guest, Dr. Jennifer Moliterno. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a science-led biopharmaceutical company dedicated to partnering with leading scientific companies, organizations, and the community to improve outcomes for advanced cancer patients. More at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about pancreatic cancer, which represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer, and research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. 
This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Jennifer Moliterno. We're talking about brain tumors. Now, right before the break, Jennifer was talking about surgery and how, here at Yale at least, uh, when she takes out brain cancers, she's very particular to take out, quote, just the bad stuff, unquote, and leave the rest of the brain behind. And the question I was asking, Jennifer, was how exactly do you do that? Because in every other cancer, we can't see tumor cells with our naked eyes. And so we talk about taking margins and wide margins in some cancers, but you really don't have that latitude in the brain. We're just that special in brain tumor surgery. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. And so first, um, to answer that question, um, you know, again, I think having a surgeon who is specialized in this, and all joking aside, I mean, there you can tell the difference to an extent. And so the, the area of tumor, for instance, glioblastoma, which is one of the types of brain cancer, one of the more malignant types of brain cancer, you can very clearly, I can very clearly, I should say, tell the difference between that and normal brain, especially the area that takes up dye versus the rest of the brain. And we use a microscope and it's microsurgical techniques and stuff like that to, to remove it. Um, when you start to look at the perimeter and in lower grade types of tumors especially, that's where, as you said, it can definitely get more blurred. Um, and, and as you also said, you know, especially if we're operating in an area of the brain that's eloquent with function um, that we want to preserve, we can't just take a huge margin. Um, so that's where, um, beyond our expertise, we use things like, I use uh, the intraoperative ultrasound for one, so that gives me kind of real-time feedback feedback about how I'm doing. Um, the, the tumor will show a certain way on the ultrasound, and so I'll be able to tell if there's more left that, that doesn't really kind of look like it to my eye. Um, and then the intraoperative MRI. And so at Yale, we're really fortunate to have a three Tesla inter intraoperative MRI. And so it's the same type of MRI that patients will have on the outpatient basis. Um, and we have it housed in a garage in between two operating rooms. And it's on a set of tracks on the ceiling. And so basically, it goes back and forth um, between the two operating rooms to the patient. And so for a typical brain tumor case, I'll be in there, remove the tumor, I'll remove as much of it as I think um, looks like tumor uh, based on my expertise, using the ultrasound as real-time feedback. And then when I decide, looks like I, I removed as much as, uh, of it as I think, I'll get an intraoperative MRI. And so sometimes there'll be a little piece that's tucked up, there'll be you know that area that's not really really the area that takes up dye, but the area that extends beyond it, like the margin, which is what you're, you're talking about. And I'll see, hmm, can I do a little bit more with that? Is that an area that's more concerning? And then I can go back and remove that. Um, especially if we have you know, monitoring of the patient, it, it allows me to feel more comfortable in doing that. So when you talk about taking up dye, you're talking about the MRI dye. Correct. The Sorry, yeah. Yes. And so that is injected intravenously. Correct. So one of the questions that people may have is, we can imagine that you're doing surgery, and as you're doing surgery, you cut across blood vessels. Mm -hmm. How do you know that that gadolinium isn't going to spill? Like, can you still get really good images Absolutely. showing you that uptake Absolutely. of dye? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. 
when you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, so tell us more about other techniques that you have that are helpful to you uh, in the operating room. I mean, I think this MRI mm-hmm. uh, is certainly beneficial, as you can imagine, people had an MRI before they came in, and instead of relying just on the static image, yes. um, you're, uh, you're yes. using this in real time. Right, and what we're able to do, too, for instance, you know, if there is an area of concern of tumor that remains, what we can do is, as I mentioned, we usually, on every case, use a GPS system. And so we, as you said, this, you know, static image, we're able to update. Um, So now it shows the resected tumor. um, And then it shows, you know, wherever that small amount of tumor might remain. Um, And then we can re-register it to our GPS system. And so then I can literally go back in there and pinpoint exactly where it is, find it, um, usually yell at myself, how did I miss that? (laughs) Um, And then, uh, and remove it. And, and, you know, it, it only adds about a half an hour to 45 minutes to the case. Um, so, so it's pretty efficiently done and really makes a huge difference. How do patients do functionally after brain tumor surgery? You know, knock on wood, um, it's, it's remarkable. Patients are always so surprised. You know, for the most part, I would say my patients spend a night in the ICU and a couple of days in the hospital, and they go home. And by the time they go home, they're fully functioning. You know, they've had major surgery, of course, um, and I always tell them to milk that as much as they can with their families. But... Um, but they go home and they're fully functioning and they're always, you know, amazed and shocked. Um, I always do caution patients that if they come in with a deficit before surgery, and so if they come in because they have weakness and they've had weakness for some time or, you know, they've had confusion or uh, language trouble, that oftentimes can get worse a little bit initially after surgery because of swelling and that sort of thing, but it usually will improve. Um, but that could be a little bit of a longer course, but but even so, very, very manageable with steroids and other types of uh, salty solutions and medications that we use. So is the primary modality for brain cancer surgery, or do you often use chemotherapy and radiation and all of the other therapies that we throw at patients for other cancers? Yeah. Well. So combination. Um, and so with certain tumors, such as meningiomas, acoustic neuromas, vestibular schwannomas, um, those primarily, a lot of times it will just be surgery alone. Um, for glioblastomas, low-grade gliomas, the more kind of intrinsic brain tumors um, and the more um, infiltrative type of brain tumors, you know, I always say that that surgery, this is not just a surgical disease. Surgery um, helps debulk, and certainly the, the more the tumor that's removed, the better, um, because, of course, in theory, it's less that the radiation and the chemotherapy uh, needs to work on. Um, but it's not a purely surgical disease. There's usually some other type of therapy that they need, and usually it is radiation and, and chemotherapy. Here at Yale, we sequence every brain tumor, meaning that we look at the genetics underlying every brain tumor that comes through. And so that allows us to see patients who might be eligible for certain clinical trials. It might also allow us to take a more um, precise or personalized approach to, to treatment, too. Tell us more about the clinical trials ongoing in in brain cancer because, you know, we often talk on this show about clinical trials and the value that they have in terms of people who participate in clinical trials tend to do better than people who don't. They're really getting kind of tomorrow's therapies today. 
So what are tomorrow's therapies? What are the exciting advances in clinical trials in brain cancer at the moment? Some of them are very similar to other types of cancers in the body, you know, immunotherapy or small molecule inhibitors, that sort of thing. Um, there's one study, actually, that, that I'm the principal investigator here um, that allows us to inject a virus um, at the time of surgery into the, the um, resection cavity. So after I remove the tumor, I'm able to inject this virus, which then will turn um, basically an antifungal drug, a, a very well-tolerated drug, into a chemotherapy. Hmm. Um, so that's pretty exciting as well, and, and they've shown some pretty nice results. I would say that, you know, with these types of brain tumors, they're so, particularly glioblastoma, which is the, the most malignant and aggressive type, they're very heterogeneous, um, meaning that, you know, there's they don't all fit into the same way of, of treatment. They're not all going to respond the same. And so I think kind of coming at it and trying to be as thoughtful, uh, particularly from a molecular basis as possible, is probably the best strategy. And that's certainly what we try here. But when we think about molecular strategies, I mean, oftentimes, at least in other tumor types, we're thinking about looking at what particular mutation a tumor might have and then targeting it with mm -hmm. a drug. Mm -hmm. And the drugs are often given intravenously. Mm -hmm. The question that I think a lot of people may have with regards to brain cancers, however, is that you've got this thing called the blood-brain yeah. barrier. Yeah. Tell us more about that and whether it's problematic or not. It can be problematic. It really can be. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why um, it has it has been so difficult to treat brain tumors. As I always say, you know, these tumors are very, very challenging. These particular tumors, of course, again, there's there's other types such as meningiomas, you know, acoustic neuromas, et cetera. I don't want to kind of scare everybody who hears brain tumors and you cannot really treat one as the next. Um, they really are dependent on the type that they are. But if we we're talking about the more malignant, more aggressive types, they're very difficult to treat. And for those reasons, as you said, I mean, one of them, as you discussed already, is that, you know, the brain is important and, and even quiet parts of the brain are still important. And so you can't get that, that huge wide margin as you wish. Sometimes we can, um, but sometimes it can be a lot more challenging for sure. And that's why we, we try to be as aggressive, um, at least I do here at Yale, as possible with removing as much tumor as possible and safely. Um, along those lines, the blood-brain barrier. Um, along those lines are, you know, um, the response of the brain to the, the medications and to the radiation, you know. And so um, radiation certainly helps with these tumors, um, but it can also cause swelling, you know. And so then we're, we're kind of battling against that with steroids and, and other types of things to deal with that, which, you know, sometimes can have issues with wound healing. And, you know, so it, it really does become a balance. So in terms of prognosis, when we think about primary brain cancers, the more malignant primary brain cancers, if patients come in and they have this resected, what is their prognosis? So it, you know, and that's really the first question that the patient always wants to know and the family wants to know, especially when I meet with the family in the waiting room. Um, that's what they want to know. And of course, um, you know, it really does vary. It varies on the type of tumor. 
it varies on the makeup of the type of tumor, and that's why it's so important to understand the molecular makeup. There are certain types of um, profile that correlate with a better prognosis versus a worse prognosis. I would say, again, referring to glioblastoma, more aggressive types of brain tumors, um, they usually can be kept at bay for a certain amount of time, but they're pretty smart tumors. And again, they're, they're very heterogeneous, and so they know kind of how to mutate and outsmart the chemotherapy um, and the radiation. And so ultimately, it's more a question of when they'll recur rather than if. Um, and when that happens, then we kind of start, you know, back at the, the drawing board and, and think, is surgery, you know, a possibility? Is uh, more radiation a possibility? Um, usually we, we limit that uh, to one time, um, but sometimes we do more. Um, and then is, you know, changing the chemotherapy to something different, changing a clinical trial, et cetera. So surgery for a recurrence is a possibility. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We try to be very aggressive with that. And, you know, the benefit to that as well is to um, to understand the, the changes in the tumors, too, you know, from a genetic standpoint. Mm-hmm. And see if maybe, as you said, is there something that we can target a little bit different? What changed in terms of the, the profile? Um, and, and we really, we see that actually at our tumor board because we have a precision tumor board, um, which looks at just that and we'll review the mutations for all the tumors that come through. And then we'll see, hey, did something change? Is there another way that we could be more creative and target this and, and try to keep it at bay longer? And we've had a lot of success with that. So we haven't talked a lot about the brain tumors that are metastatic from other sites. So in one minute, can you uh, can you just tell us are those are those things the things that you would routinely resect, or are these more, you know, a manifestation of systemic disease? No, I think it it really depends. Um, I think it depends on several things. I think it depends on the type of tumor that it is. I think it depends whether there's one or multiple. I think it depends whether or not the patient is symptomatic or not. Um, I think it depends whether or not it's radiosensitive. Um, and so uh, that's another kind of modality for treating particularly metastatic cancer. Dr. Jennifer Moliterno is an assistant professor of neurosurgery and of brain tumor surgery at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.